Well, you know, it's been interesting. I, as you said earlier, and for those of you that don't know me and have made it this far into the podcast, yes. <laughs> I was a musician for a very long time, my whole life. And then four years ago, I retired. And there's many reasons for that, which we could talk about if you want to, or we don't have to. But um, when the pandemic started last year, so many people privately were texting me, calling me, Facebook messaging me. And I, I'm going to start crying right now, but they're like, please sing, please sing for me. Yes. And I, you know, I don't feel like in the echelon of musicians, you know, I'm probably like a C grade musician and, and, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I know that there's, you know, like Bruce Springsteen, you have a yeah. whole podcast dedicated to him. Yeah. Um, I figured, you know, I've retired. There's people out there doing what they need to do to make people right. feel better. Um, I never, it never occurred to me that I could make people feel better too. You know, yeah. I didn't. I didn't think I mattered that much. So after, I don't know, 10 or 15 asks by different people, I started thinking, well, okay. So I thought, I'll just sing a song a day. That'll, you know, I had to work my fingers back up. They mm -hmm. didn't have calluses. My voice was really shot. Yeah. Because um, it's a muscle, you know. And I yeah, exactly. So I started and I was very transparent about it. You know, I was going live on Facebook and I would pop up and do a song. And then people started expecting it. And then I was, I got this idea to do a, a Sarathon, which was a 24 hour live concert I did on Facebook. Um, and that was, for me, that was really magical because I had to, to plan out 24 hours of songs, right? Yeah. I made this giant chart and I put 10 songs in each hour for the 24 hours, including from, uh, 10 o'clock at night until eight in the morning that whole night I did quiet songs so I wouldn't wake up my family so I moved downstairs and sang at the dining table while they were sleeping and then at eight in the morning I started playing a little bit louder children's music first and then back yeah. to my adult music um and I was amazed at how many songs I knew I was you know I was amazed at different genres I knew and the different guitar styles I knew and it was um more than anything was for me. I, I kind of forgot. I kind of forgot my life as a musician, not, not completely, but it was all yeah. of a sudden like this, it, it was a great awakening for me that, wow, I really did a lot with my life. I made a lot of different kinds of music. I'm, I'm not the worst. I'm not the best, but I, I certainly can, if I can hold people's attention for 24 hours, I must be okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and joining me tonight is one of my dearest friends, one of my longest friends, and before I introduce her, I'm going to tell a story, and then she's going to join. So let's go back in the Wayback Machine, DeLorean, TARDIS, whatever you want to do. And there was this little club on Greenville. And there was Miss Molly and the Passions were playing. And 
Um, and my friends, Rick and Jennifer, loved Miss Molly. Miss Molly was from Lake Charles, and she cussed, and she she was this blue Janis Joplin. Oh, we've got to see her. And there was this band called Esta Chica that was opening. And so we go, and all of a sudden, there is this band with a young, beautiful, lovely blonde singer that looks not Hispanic whatsoever, right? <laughs> and um, her name was Sarah Hickman, and she played, and we loved her. I mean, we just loved everything about her, and we were clapping and going. And so, you know how at clubs, there's a time between bands and Sarah walks up to our um, table and says, I heard you, I heard you applauding for me. Do you want to be on my mailing list? And oh, by the way, why weren't y'all dancing? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a, I'm a white Jesse Jackson, my, you know, so I'm not, my brothers aren't here. I was making a Michael Jackson joke, so I don't dance. And Miss Molly starts playing, and Sarah comes up, grabs my hands, and says, even you can dance to this song, pulls me out on the dance floor, and we sing. And then I get back, and Linda, who'd had a few beverages, said, I can't believe you never danced with me. I can't believe you danced with a stranger. And she was not truly mad. She just was funny, like, you're going to dance now. And so she made me dance the rest of the night. And the next day, because Sarah had said, oh, I'm playing at Club Dada for some arts and poetry festival. And that was on Sunday. We went and saw her. And all of a sudden, here's this beautiful singer-songwriter that just her and a guitar Wait, I just have to interrupt and say, I really appreciate how often you're using the word beautiful. Continue. And Linda and I both fell in love with Sarah, the person and the music. Aww. And um, and this was got to be 87, 88, Sarah? Um, so, probably 86 or 87. Yeah. I graduated North Texas in 86. And I think we were together for a year after that because we put out that cassette of yeah. Chica. Yeah. So anyway, singer, songwriter, former official musician of the state of Texas, mom, um, you know, charity working, political advocate, and truly one of my dearest friends, Sarah Hickman is joining me. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Thank you, Jesse, for that beautiful introduction. Emphasis on beautiful. Do you I, remember I, that night? Oh, I remember like it it's, was tonight. I totally yeah. remember it. And uh, I met a lot of people <laughs> through Estachica, actually, because to go back just a slight bit, Please. they were called the Bushwhackers when I joined them. It was a group of guys and they'd lost their uh, one of their guitar players and their singer or something like that so somehow I was invited to audition or asked to be in it and we all hit it off and the first thing I said was I don't really want to be in a band called the Bushwhackers that's not going to work for me and then they said well what should we be called and I said Esta Chica and they were like 
well, why that? And I was like, because it means this girl. <laughs> and I'm the only girl in the band. So then we rested Chica. And we didn't do any salsas or oh. cumbias or anything yeah. like that. I, I I promise I'm going to ask Sarah questions, but there are so many so many stories that need to tell. Um, I will have people on the podcast that talk about seeing Bruce Springsteen hundreds of times, and I talk about I I do. It would be impossible for me to count the amount of times Linda and I have seen Sarah perform, and um, some you can tell we did not have kids. Um, every Monday night for at least a couple of years, it felt like, but Sarah played at Club Dada every Monday night. I think the show started at 10 p.m. You know, it may have been nine, but it feels like it was 10. You and know what? I feel like it was actually earlier because I felt like I was kind of, uh, they built it up as something to do on Monday nights. And then there was a band after me. Okay. Maybe was it? Know? Maybe. I don't know. Like maybe I was eight to 10 and then okay. 10 to midnight was a band. I, maybe I said, so. Maybe I was the band. I don't know. Yeah. But Linda and I would come home, take a nap and then get up and shower. And that's why I felt like you started at 10, but I it may have been maybe. wrong. 10 and sounds late to me. Yeah, now. it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> Um, and you know, and, and I remember one of the sweetest things you said is, um, when you were first starting as a musician and, and started to perform live, there were about a dozen people who you could count on would be at every show. And Lynn and I were part of that group. And y'all were, y'all were respectable and considerate. You weren't men sitting alone. With your hands folded under your chins, <laughs> set lusting me. Yeah. You were <laughs> you were people there to hear my music and not think about maybe taking me home afterwards. <laughs> well, and and I remember one of the stories you told, and and I'm telling you right now, audience, this is if you don't want to hear stories, skip ahead. But um, the we we invited Sarah over to our house, like we we're going to watch Casablanca or, or multiple times, right? <laughs> it was Casablanca. Yeah, and um, and she was so articulate and so serious, not boring serious. And I remember Linda asking you, like, you seem different on stage, and and you and I'm putting words in your mouth, and please correct me, but you're like if I act a little ditzy and I get a little crazy, I get less passes pushed at me. They tend to listen to my music a little more. Is mm -hmm. that, am I getting the story correct? Uh, that's probably correct. I, you know, I, when I started making music at six, um, yeah. of course these things weren't something I needed to worry about. Um, so really until uh, I got my first gigs at 13 and 14, Mm -hmm. It wasn't really till I went off to college that I started realizing, maybe a little bit in high school, but yeah. um, I started noticing that men and lesbians were particularly attracted to me when I was on stage. Yes. And I was really shy back then. I would keep my eyes closed and sing when I play my guitar. And um, yeah. I realized that when I started just saying any little quirky thing, people seemed to find that endearing but also not sex sexy yeah <laughs> so it was like then i became kind of like the girl next door or their sister or a friend yeah 
um, you know, only the most intent men and lesbians were uh, would stick around and, and continue to try. But uh, mostly everyone else got it that I was there to make music and tell stories and make people feel good. And after a while, the stories kind of started getting longer, especially after I toured with Billy Bragg. Yeah. Because I saw how long he would go on and on and on and on. Then a song. And on and on and on and on and on. And then a song. Um, and I thought, oh, he really commands the stage and nobody's leaving when he's not singing. Of course, he was political and I wasn't mm -hmm. yet. But he, he taught me a lot on that tour about um, being true to yourself, but also speaking up on behalf of people who have no voice, whether it's in your music or from the stage talking about it. And then my, I went quite a, kind of from quirky to a little more serious. And I started trying to balance those two things. Like, how could I be funny and, and bring thought to people? And I, re I remember when I, the first time I ever talked about the death penalty on stage, um, that was particularly awkward. Yeah. Um, so there were certain things I would try that didn't go over well, but I was dedicated to wanting to make people think and make people feel good. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the things that I've always thought of is, um, and if you did not say this, you implied it as I never let the truth get in the way of a good story, especially on stage right? Like, because mm -hmm. I'm there to entertain. And I cannot tell you how often, Sarah, when I've had a musician on the podcast and I'm interviewing them, and I'll talk about them performing live and talking about, and I tell the story, sing Louie Louie, which... <laughs> Sarah's playing, you know, because she was, she took, you know, she is now retired, though it, she has started to perform live. But, you know, as all young musicians do, if they will pay you 25 bucks to play your guitar, yes, because you got to pay the light bill. And right. I remember one time you went three or four days with no lights because you you gave up your day job because you were focused on music was, and oh, yeah yeah and well like, and we should put some context into yeah. what that was concerning yes please uh, it was on greenville avenue and i don't recall how i got invited i think the owner of this establishment which was really an italian restaurant yeah, like a pizza place i, I yeah. always and remember then outside that story they had not even a stage but they had a little patio and you yeah. would stand on the patio level with everybody in their tables and stuff and i brought a little back then my only pa system was a little fender amp yes and i, would, I had a mic stand a sure 58 mic my guitar a guitar cable a capo and a pick that was it yep. and i would carry you know i'd park as close as i could i'd bring the amp in and the guitar in first and then i'd run back to the car and get the other stuff and come back not that anybody was going to steal anything, but it always felt yeah. like it was going to be a possibility. Anyway, this woman had called and, and hired me to play for an event, air quotes here, an event on their patio. And I thought, okay, you know, and I don't know, it was 25, 30 bucks, whatever. And I only had to play like, <laughs> this sounds terrible now, like two hours yeah. <laughs> for 30 bucks. It's like, what? But Yay. Anyway, yeah. you know, when you're starting, you're like, yeah, all right. So I went, it turned out to be a fraternity party. And it was all young whippersnappers in their 20s, as I was also. I, yeah. So I would have been like probably 22 or 23. Yeah. And I was cute, you know, and I'm over there playing my songs and singing and they're getting drunk and eating pizza or whatever. 
and uh, they started going, Louie, Louie, play Louie, Louie. And then this one guy came up and actually put his arm on my shoulder while I was in the middle of a song and got on the mic, got in between me and the mic and said, play Louie, Louie, bitch. And that, that was it. I was like, nope. And I unplugged everything and I started to pack up. And, you know, obviously the music had stopped. So the lady yeah. comes out that owns the establishment and she's like, wait, wait, you've got another hour. I was like, no, I don't. Yeah. I'm not standing for this business. <laughs> and then I wrote a letter to the Dallas Observer, which they printed Yeah. about it, um, which somewhere is in the catalog at Rice University. They have all yeah. stuff. But... Right. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go back to the beginning, but. I have shared on the podcast um, on July 31st, you were playing Poor David's Pub, mm -hmm. the great Colin Boyd opened for you. And this is the first live music I had heard in probably a year and a half. And we all were wearing our masks. You, Colin opened for you. And then you came out on stage I will tell you, I was crying, Sarah, because, and, and partly because it's you, but partly because, oh my gosh, we had gone through so much crap. And since July 31st, I feel like we've taken 15 steps backwards. But at that moment, there was a sense of optimism to me and Linda. And like Linda on the way there, like, I'm a little worried. I've, I'm worried about it. Do we wear a mask? What are we going to do? And the moment she started hearing Colin sing, and then the moment she heard you sing, you know, Linda's looking at me like, I am so glad we came. Yeah. How did it feel to you? Um, well, you know, it's been interesting. I, as you said earlier, and for those of you that don't know me and have made it this far into the podcast, yes. <laughs> I was a musician for a very long time, my whole life. And then four years ago, I retired. And there's many reasons for that, which we could talk about if you want to, or we don't have to. But um, when the pandemic started last year, so many people privately were texting me, calling me, Facebook messaging me. And I, I'm going to start crying right now, but they were like, please sing. Please sing for me. Yes. And I, you know, I don't feel like in the echelon of musicians, you know, I'm probably like a C grade musician and, and, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I know that there's, you know, like Bruce Springsteen, you have a yeah. whole podcast dedicated to him. Yeah. Um, I figured, you know, I've retired. There's people out there doing what they need to do to make people right. feel better. Um, I never, it never occurred to me that I could make people feel better too. You know, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think I mattered that much. So after, I don't know, 10 or 15 asks by different people, I started thinking, well, okay. So I thought I'll just sing a song a day. That'll, you know, I had to work my fingers back up. They mm -hmm. didn't have calluses. My voice was really shot. Yeah. Because um, it's a muscle, you know. And I yeah, exactly. So I started and I was very transparent about it. You know, I was going live on Facebook and I would pop up and do a song. And then people started expecting it. And then I was, I got this idea to do a, a Sarathon, which was a 24-hour live concert I did on Facebook. Um, and... That was, for me, that was really magical because I had to to plan out 24 hours of songs, right? 
Yeah. I made this giant chart and I put 10 songs in each hour for the 24 hours, including from uh, 10 o'clock at night until eight in the morning. That whole night I did quiet songs so I wouldn't wake up my family. So I moved downstairs and sang at the dining table while they were sleeping. And then at eight in the morning, I started playing a little bit louder children's music first and then back yeah. to my adult music. Um, and I was amazed at how many songs I knew. I was, you know, I was amazed at different genres I knew and the different guitar styles I knew. And it was um, more than anything was for me. I, I kind of forgot. I kind of forgot my life as a musician, not not completely, but I was all yeah. of a sudden like this. It, it was a great awakening for me that, wow, I really did a lot with my life. I made a lot of different kinds of music. I'm I'm not the worst. I'm not the best, but I I certainly can. If I can hold people's attention for 24 hours, I must be okay. <laughs> well, and I always thought that you help support your family. And your career was, I mean, and you are, a, you know, a, a wonderful wife, a, a a devoted mother. I think you've talked about. It. I had a good career, yeah. you know. I mean, you know, I, I was happy. I I got to tour and see a lot of the country. I was able to. You took multiple trips to Europe to mm -hmm. for charity work. Um, I. I don't know if you were quite the Harry Chapin level where one for me and one for the other guy, mm -hmm. but you were pretty close. You, any, any quote unquote fame or success, you always took and said, how can I make other people's lives better? Yes. And, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful compliment that you put me anywhere near Harry Chapin. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't know the story of Harry Chapin. I knew his songs, of course. Yeah. Um, I did not realize that he took all the money that he made and put it into other people. Yeah. And it wasn't until many, 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 I, I would guess maybe even like 10 years ago is when I found out because I, I just always felt like it wasn't just my career. It was mm -hmm. all the people around me that yeah. had been excited for me or supported me or even just said a small thing like the, the mailman and I became friends because I would come outside and sing to him when he would deliver my mail, right? Right. So to me, it was, uh, it was important. It was important that I do a good job, not just for myself, but all those people that, that want to know somebody that made it. Right. Yes. You know, it's like I've never met somebody who's won the publishing clearinghouse, but I, I would like to. I would sure. like to know that it's real. And yeah. I think that's how people felt that like you, like you knew me and then you knew me before the record label stuff. And then to be on a record label and to go tour and, and meet all these amazing, famous people and sing with some of them, some of them and record with them and and just, you know, to be on The Tonight Show and, and play at Carnegie Hall. All these things, you know, I just I feel I feel like I set my sights at six years old. And in that sense, I was successful. I did everything I wanted. I got to meet George Burns. I got Here. to make records. I got to tour. I got to make money. I bought a house. Yeah. You know, I, I was able to take care of my family through just making music. I haven't had a day job um, since, since uh, my first year out of college. I worked at a shoe store, Colbert's. Right in Dallas. And then I also worked for Bob Mader, who was a really great photographer. And he actually hired me to be his um, assistant in, in terms of getting him publicity. 
So I would call the Dallas Morning News and stuff to try to get this photographer, who who was a really good photographer, high end, mm-hmm. uh, you know, publicity, which was very difficult. But sometimes, especially as I started playing more around Dallas, and this was just my, you know, like Poor David's Pub and where you saw me, which was on Tango, right? I know what it was called. Or Ellen's Redo, or what? Oh, yeah, Ellen's. Ellen's was yes, Ellen. Yeah. When she was the one that introduced me to my manager. Anyway, blah 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 blah. Um, yeah, you know, for me it was like um, now I forgot what I was talking about. Well, just this journey, right? <laughs> yeah, the journey that I that that I set my sights. I knew I wanted to be on Electra Records. I ended up on Electra Records. I, you know, so I, in that sense, I don't know how much more successful you could be. You know, I mean, I had songs in movies. I still get songs placed sometimes in TV shows, yeah. and uh, so you know, I can't complain. I just the music industry changed, and I wasn't. I wasn't thrilled about where it was going and I just decided I don't want to be a part of that because they're killing us. They're killing yeah. us as creators by not paying us anymore. And right. why would I want to keep doing something that I love, but I can't afford to take care of my family by doing it. It's, yeah. embarrassing. it's embarrassing really more than anything to, 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 to bring your kids up feeling like everything's okay. And then it's not okay. And, and how do you explain? Well, the music you're listening to on Spotify <laughs> is the very reason I'm not making money. Yes, because pennies, pennies mm-hmm. of, I mean, you could have hundreds of thousands of listens and you get pennies. So where I used to make a lot of money, you know, the only, and the only thing now is, you know, like our oldest Lily, I feel for them. You know, I, it's a dog eat dog world with rabid dogs and too many dogs. And there's, as my A&R guy, Electra, used to say, the cream rises to the top. It's easy to find the best. Now it's it's literally impossible. You, I mean, it does. It still happens, of course. It's a lot harder because everybody has home studios, or they have right. they just record on their phone. They, you know, they upload everything on YouTube, and so you, and then you can just set up your playlist on Spotify and hear all kinds of amazing music from all over the world, but are people making a living off of it? No. You know, they, and, and now we can't tour because of the pandemic. Now we can't, you know, so it's, it's really sad. And um, so you asked me what it was like to be back on stage. Yeah. Today, so that was your question. And um, this was a long way about to get to it. That's, but, I love this. Um, you know, um, I had done one gig earlier for David, I think November last year, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, and the monkey duck in Houston, but I said, I, we can't have anybody in there. And they were all very accommodating the owners of these clubs. I think there was four people at Port David's pub in masks sitting 20 feet away from me. And we streamed, right. Yeah. And I made a lot of money on the streaming actually. And then when I played the monkey duck, I had people from New Zealand and Japan and all, you know, they were writing in the chat tell sarah to play this song or tell sarah la, la, la. and so uh at the monkey duck teresa who's one of the owners would come in with this whiteboard this little handheld whiteboard and they'd have a question written on it and she would say joan from thailand just ask this question and i would be like thailand and then i would read the question out loud and i would go you guys this is so cool so there was only like six people at monkey duck but it was like there didn't need to be people there. I couldn't yeah. see the audience, but it was even bigger. And it was really exciting to stream like that. Um, but, you know, there's nothing like having you and, and Linda and 
and I don't know how many people were there. Seventy-five, I think. Is yeah, it felt it felt like a good crowd. You yeah, know, it, it felt full, right? It, it did feel no. full. It didn't and feel overly crowded, and and it was. It was amazing. It, it, it and yeah. that's such a simple word to use, you know. But yeah. it almost like uh, going away for four years has made me more appreciative and really love people more. I mean, I just, when I got to come out and the fact that you guys were there really meant so much to me because I know you have to drive for me and it's hard. I, and I, what I really miss about performing, I don't know about other performers, but when I finish and mm -hmm. I get off the stage, I'm not one of those people that leaves through the back door and gets in my limo and leaves. I'm one of those people that comes out and hangs out longer than I've actually performed because there's so many people to talk to and everyone is so kind and people, some people tell me they're, problems i feel kind of like a songwriting santa claus you know i'm yes therapist santa claus and i stand there and i hug people and people cry and to me that essence of of the eons of being a, a storyteller that's what yes. songwriters are right we used to tell the history of stuff through song well we're still doing that but now we have more creative freedom to talk about our feelings and stuff and and just being in that familiar family feeling that's what an audience to me is like maybe people come in as strangers but by the time my show is over i feel like we're one big family and i love that i really missed that and i think that's what you and linda were missing is that kind of absolutely solidarity of humanity being in one place and being nice to each other yes maybe there's a drunk heckler but you put up with that uncle that weird guy yeah. over in the corner everybody yes. else is like we're all together and we're listening to music and and then we're going to talk to Sarah and then, you know, or Bruce brings in or whoever. Yeah. Well, one of the things that Lynn and I have traced over the years is when we first started seeing you and you started getting a little quote unquote success where you were playing bigger venues and, you know, in the Dallas Observer Awards, you're winning awards and you're headlining a show. Um, we We were always friends, but it would reach the point where um you know we would stand in line to see you and there were friends that you loved to see and you were talking to them and you would go and then lynn and i reached the point where linda was like go oh, we're now those people like we're having to sarah has not seen us in so long she wants to talk to us and we miss her so much but you and i are both going okay sarah there, there's a whole line of people to see you you in well, like the I nice thing was i could always come over to your house yes I, I wasn't it was going to everybody's house. yes it was i can have dinner with you or come fall asleep on your sofa watching casablanca because i still think it's a really boring movie i'm the only one i know but. that's okay <laughs> i tell this story my friend tom zoller is 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 an artist and he he has done my little pony he's written my little pony stories he's written a lot of music a lot of art and, and stories and he says from the moment he can remember consciousness he knew he wanted to be an artist mm -hmm. he just his whole life he he always drew he I mean, he had no, and, and he went to a private Catholic high school and got straight A's and, and could have gotten to any university he want. And he picked the Joe Kubert cartoon school that's in Jersey. And that's where he went in and he got his, you know, degree there wow. and his whole life, he's wanted to be an artist. And so is that similar to you? Have you always known you wanted to make music? Oh yeah. I mean, I, you know, um, first of all, I was very fortunate in that um, 
both my parents were visual artists. And um, so my mom, specifically my mom was always saying, there's nothing you can't do. You know, which um, I was born in 1963. So all through the 60s, 70s and 80s, that's what my mom was telling me. You can set the world on fire. You can do whatever you want. Um, neither of my parents ever said, um, you're a girl, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, that was the days where you would get on your bike and go ride around until dinner time. No one wondered where you were. No one was worried about you per se, right? You know, yeah. I would ride around on my bike with my guitar in my hand. And um, I would take my guitar out and do, I had a, my dad had built kind of this treehouse thing in back behind the garage. So it was very private. And I would go back there and, and write songs in the treehouse or up on top of the treehouse or even way up in this tree. I, w I don't know how I climbed up a tree with my guitar. I guess I slung it over my back. But yeah, my guitar was essentially my best friend. Um, still my best friend. I, you know, I, I go to my guitar when I'm sad. I go to my guitar when I'm happy. I, some, I've, I've fallen asleep in bed with my guitar. I've fallen asleep on stage with my guitar. I was so tired I would be playing and singing and I, I woke up one time in the middle of a song. I was on autopilot somehow and I was drooling <laughs> down onto my guitar. Anyway, more than you want to know. No, no, that's perfectly. Um, and you've, you've been on the podcast once before, uh, right after David Cassidy passed, you joined me and we talked about David and, and I remember one of the things I shared with you is that, um, Springsteen's autobiography had just come out and he talked about that when he first got money, he went crazy and he wanted a guitar in every room of his house. And you said, Oh, Jesse. And you're like, you're showing me, there is a guitar in every room in my house. I don't have Bruce Springsteen money, but yes, I'm exactly that way. <laughs> yeah, well, and my and I'm going to guess this is how it happened for Bruce too. Um, you know, one of the particulars about being famous at any level, which yeah. is interesting, is before you're quote unquote famous, you're str you are literally struggling. You're putting every yeah. second of money aside. You're thinking, how can I, you know, whatever you got to do. Yeah. Um, the minute you become famous, people are, you know, you walk in a restaurant, people are like, oh, let me, let me buy your dinner and, or, you know, oh, I made this guitar for you. I would get guitars in the mail. Um, in particular, there was a beautiful guitar from a couple of people. One is, um, I believe his name is pronounced Hamon Zeller, but I've okay. seen Jamon Zeller. He sent me a guitar with an angel wing on it when I sold a bunch of my guitars to raise money to buy my master's back from Electra because... He heard about it on NPR. So mm -hmm. he built me a guitar, that beautiful guitar. It has a, not only this little angel wing for the pick guard, but it has my name and, and oh. other pearl on the neck. And then this also this amazing guy named Christopher Jenkins, who's actually a veterinarian up in Fort mm. Worth, or near Fort Worth. He built me a guitar. Uh, he had built one for Christine Lavin, and then he came <laughs> to Caravan of Dreams and said, hey, I, I built this guitar for Christine Lavin. Can I build one for you? And I was like, Sure. Yeah, so sure. A lot of the guitars came or from Takamini or Gibson mm -hmm. or I have a Luna endorsement, you know, um, or boyfriends would give me a guitar. You know, it was just like I, I, yeah. I always I've had probably 80 or 90 guitars over the course of my life. And I don't have all of them still because a lot of them <laughs> I would be on stage and I would be at a benefit concert or something. And, 
maybe they weren't raising as much as they wanted. And I would say, yeah. what? what's guitar? And I would go, Hey, I'll auction this guitar off. And people would be like, what? And then yeah. I would make more money for that benefit and give them my guitar. than I would have paid for the guitar. even. You know, but yeah. to me, it was like, people are, people have been ex- incredibly kind with me. Yeah. And I want, again, it goes back to that whole circle of, I want to share what I have right. because it's not really mine. I can't take it with me. Now, what I don't understand, and I'm going to skip ahead, <laughs> I adore you. We would go see you every chance we could. I don't how, understand that, but I'm really grateful. Yeah, I really don't. I don't how, even get sick of me. Yeah, but how the hell did you open for Bruce Springsteen and I somehow was not at that gig? You know, I don't know either. It's, it was one of those things where um, I wasn't even told who I was opening for, if I remember correctly. And, and maybe I that's say, why, maybe there was. And I want to say it was at the Bronco Bowl, right? It was the Bronco Bowl. I just remember going and being on this stage, and I'm pretty sure that's where it was, And yeah. um, which sounds weird to people. I'm sure you're like, well, how do you not remember? But I've played thousands yeah. of gigs, so you have to Yeah, exactly. Um, and but, I believe it was the Ghost of Tom Joad tour, because it was him alone. Yes, it was yeah, him alone. So, so yeah. I, I went out to perform like I do. I, did, I still didn't know what was happening. It was yeah. just me. And I went out and, you know, I don't think, the, I guess some of the audience knew, but I don't feel like they really knew either. I don't know yeah. how they got people there. But anyway, maybe it was one of those things where you have to be in the know and you yeah. know about it. But I didn't know. And so I played. And then from what I remember, I got off the stage and I had my, you know, I was getting my gear and I was yeah. going to leave and I was going up the side to leave or whatever. And I turned around and out comes Bruce Springsteen. And I was like, what? Yeah. Wow. How come I didn't get to, you know? Yeah. Why didn't I get to stay and sing a harmony? Or why didn't I yeah. get to say hello or get him to sign my guitar or, or call yeah. Jesse? We didn't have cell phones then. Yeah. I would have. Yeah. I would take a selfie with him. Or t- you know, I I was just like as blown away as you are because yeah. I, I don't even know why they called me and not yeah. Alejandro yeah. or somebody. But hey, I'm not <laughs> yeah. complaining. I no, just... it's just it is hilarious. Um, so I, I've, I've got to give you a chance to tell some stories. And I, I know all of them but my audience doesn't. You are starting out, you're playing clubs, you're, you're playing everywhere you can, mm-hmm. and you slowly gained enough money, you're going to do an album. Mm-hmm. And you did it locally. To this day, Linda, Jesse, and the baby are one of the highlights of our life. Uh, Linda was pregnant at the time when Equal uh-huh. Scary People came out. And you, and you, back then, I had to, I think, I, I don't remember if I had to put font down. Yeah. Maybe you you gave somebody a list and somebody typed it up and then you approved yeah. it. But it wasn't like today where you could design it all on a computer. Yeah. Right? And yeah, yeah, so I put you and Linda and the baby because I didn't know what the baby was. Exactly, yet, yes. In the credits. And I also thanked my friend Larry Law, but it came out wrong. It was supposed to be Mary Law. <laughs> to this day, she still goes by Larry, which is hilarious. That is so, hilarious, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Equal Scary People comes out. I still say, and I'm biased, a wonderful first album. I, I, I put it against any musician whatsoever, partly because... Linda and I heard almost every song live, you know, at multiple times and like, oh, wow, that's a little different arrangement, you know, and oh, she did this. Brave Combo helped, right? Carl Finch, uh, the great, yeah. So talk about 
how did Alecker reach out to you and go, hey, we like this album. Maybe you want to join the Electra family, right? Like I'm thinking of Tom Hanks, the thing you do, that thing you do, you yes. know, that move. Okay, yeah. well, yes. And it is really awesome. I hate to use the word awesome again. No, that's Everything okay. is awesome. It, it, it's, it's a miracle and it's also not unexpected because the one thing I've learned in my life that I try to impress upon other people is that you really can find a way if you are tenacious, if you work hard, and if you keep your eye on the prize. And I had done that since I was six years old. I, every time somebody said, will you, will you come play at my shoe store or whatever it was, I would go, sure. I, I, you know, it wasn't really till I joined the music industry that I had to deal with um, sexism and ageism yeah. and beautyism and all these things. Um, but anyway, so I was, I had put out Equal Scary People and Carl Finch of Brave Combo, his label is called Four Dots. He didn't really per se do anything after he produced, I think, seven songs and I produced four or something. I don't remember. Yeah. But even then I was like, no, 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 Carl, I produced these. I'm going to put my name on there. And he's like, okay, fine. Um, I, I, I went to Kinko's and I Xeroxed Four Dots off of one of his records because I was putting it on four dots because I thought, well, that's a label. I don't know. And then once it was on there, Carl was off with Brave Combo doing stuff. And I was like, oh, what do, what do I do now? So yeah. I just, through sheer gumption, thought, well, I guess I call people on the phone. I don't know. And I would call people on the phone and, you know, started locally with the Dallas Observer and Dallas Morning News. And and I would go to Sound Warehouse every day. It was here in Dallas, there in Dallas when I lived in Dallas. Um, because back then, this would have been 1988, um, independent records didn't exist, right? You were on a label or you didn't get in record stores. You didn't get radio play. I, on the other hand, felt like, well, that's ridiculous. I made a record. Here it is. You know, I could see yeah. it. And I would go, I think it was for like three months, I would go to Sound Warehouse and sit in the lobby. And, and after a while, the woman at the reception desk was like, well, I don't know why you're here no one's going to talk to you about this. And I would go, okay, well, I'm just, I'm going to wait. Cause I really think I have something special here. And one day this um, fella was walking down the hallway. There was these big glass windows in the hall. And he saw me sitting out there holding my vinyl on my lap with the front facing out. So you could see my face on the album. And he came through the door and he looked at me and said, are you, you're Sarah Ekman? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, I come see you at Club Dada. You're great. Is that your record? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, come on in here and talk to me about it. So I went in and I told him, look, I know I'm not on a label. I know I'm not in distribution, which I didn't even really know what that was, but I knew it was a word. And um, I said, but if you could just have a couple of these up near the front at checkout, I mean, what would it hurt? And he was like, why not? So I was the first person that I know of, at least in Dallas, who inserted herself into the store without a, I didn't have a UPC code. I wasn't in any distribution. I wasn't on a label. I was on four dots, but really it was Sarah Hicks yeah. pushing my four dots record. Um, and that was the start of it. And then uh, a band called Killbilly that was a punk bluegrass band. Yes. Um, I was friends with, they, they called me up and they said, Hey, we're a band. We can get booked at gigs outside of Texas. 
you're you have a, a record and you get press because by then I was this little machine and I knew how to call people and what time to call them and how to mail my my record to them because you know you had to mail things back then right I even got in amoeba records out in California by being insistent <laughs> and I even made them pay me for my records now back then you had to send samples right so I, right. I had to send like five albums out to them and when they called me and said, yeah, we want to carry this in the store. And I said, okay, well, first you need to pay me for the five I just sent you. And they said, no, 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 no. Those, those are, you know, we'll play them in the store so people can hear it and buy it. And I said, well, that's awesome. That's, I didn't say awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. However, I, I put this up on myself and I need to recoup that money to pay back my investors. And they were, I think they thought that I was just so charming. They went, okay. So I sent them an actual invoice and they sent me a check. But um, anyway, so, so Kill Billy was right. I was getting press and really nice press and uh, I was getting in record stores and they were able to tour. So we went out on this tour together and it was, I think there was six or eight guys in Kill Billy and they were really great people. And um, I was in the van with these guys and we would drive to gigs and I would open, I would get the press, I would open, and then they would be the band that played because they got the big booking. And we got to Kansas City, Kansas, I think. And again, no cell phones, no internet back then. Somehow my brand new manager called me at a phone booth and told me that the vice president of Electra Records was coming down from New York to see me because he had gotten my Equal Scary People album by reading about it in the Dallas Observer. I was on the cover of the Dallas Observer with three, under, three other awesome people. Anyway, so he'd had this friend in Dallas mail him my album up to New York and he loved it. And so he was flying down to see me in Kansas City. So my manager was, he was a very calm guy. I was like, so, you know, just want you know, he's coming. And I was like, I got off the phone and I was like, oh, I get my dream, it's a lecture, yeah. they're coming. So I went and bought this little, velvet green lime dress that was super tight and I had some little boots on and I got these neon pink um, earring loops which because you know this was the 80s so everything was neon and units and all that stuff and um, I got to the club and there's maybe 20 or 30 people there and um, right when I started to perform I looked around the room and I said hey I know y'all don't know me but this is a really exciting night for me. I would really appreciate it if after every song, you would just really show your appreciation because my dream is coming true. Tonight, there is a man from Electra Records coming from New York City to see me so you can help me. And I just bet he's gonna be the only person dressed all in black. So when he comes in, if you see him, please remember what I've just told you. I'm like two or three songs in or whatever we're doing my thing, la 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 la. And sure enough, this tall, lanky guy in all black walks in and goes to the back of the club. And now everybody's excited because I'm excited, right? And I'm playing and I finish the song and they just go crazy. Like, like it's the best, like they've just heard Beyonce at Coachella. You know, it was just like Baychella. And so um, I played, I don't know, probably half an hour, 40 minutes, a normal opening gig. And the last song, they I got a standing ovation. <laughs> So I, I leave the stage. I obviously know that he's the guy from Electra sitting back there, but I'm not going to play my hand. So I go over to the bar. 
he comes up to the bar and he says, Sarah Hickman. And I said, yes. And he goes, I'm Howard Thompson. I'm with Lecter Records. And I was wondering if I could talk to you for a moment. And I was like, sure. Plus he's British, right? So yeah. I go sit down and he was like, I, I've never seen anything like that. That was amazing. People really respond to you. <laughs> I was like, you know, it happens. Hey, yeah, it is. Yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, he was talking about wanting to sign me and he had bought shots of tequila and my friend Mark Rubin who played bass in Killbilly had kind of meandered over and was standing next to me like this big bodyguard. Yeah. I said, you know, as you can see, I'm very vibrant and outgoing, but I got really serious and I said, well, I would love to be on Electra Records, but you have to promise me one thing. And Howard said, what's that? And I said, you have to promise not to ever change who I am. And he said, will do. And then that was the beginning of learning about the music industry. <laughs> yes. Because Howard kept his word. Howard yes. is a gentleman and I'm still friends with him to this day. And he has his own radio show out of New York. But the rest of the industry is another story. So anyway, that's how I got signed to Electra. Well, and the issue, Lynn and I, and understand Lynn and I wanted you to be Whitney Houston. I mean, we. I know, well, I know my manager wanted me to be like yeah. uh, Bette Midler. He wanted me to be well, in movies, well, TV, and. What What I mean by that is, we there are some people that are very protective of artists and go, mm-hmm. I, I don't want them to be massive success because I want to have that. Well, I <laughs> know, you know, um, I know this little musician. You know, I don't want Lucinda Williams to be a household name because I want to have that treasure of I knew her. And Lynn and I, of course, because we loved you, like, no, I I wanted you to explode. I wanted you to be the biggest musician ever. We always were very proud of you that you knew who you were and you knew what you wanted to do. I mean, um, you know, I do remember you talking about the death penalty and there um, there was an inmate you were a pen pal with that was on death row. Um, there was on your second album, Shortstop, you know, you're having a band of one of the journalists that was being held um see i'm gonna get it wrong now i can't I, no but, no, no. It, yeah. it was thomas sutherland who was yeah. a hostage in lebanon yeah. yes yeah if we send our hearts over now I left my heart out on my sleep and they shot me down and they left me here to die With my last kisses, this cold ground Will I forget the hand That held the gun and took my life away Can't we take the time of day To give the world another chance Or can we learn from our mistakes We're human after all Well, I can't believe I'm the only one who 
You always were, you, you never lost your sense of self. And, and so, and, and I think, I will not put words in your mouth, but I, I believe that if, if there had been a magic genie and said, here's two paths, Sarah, here you can have fame and glory and you will be the next Bette Midler. You will be the next, you know, um, Linda Ronstadt. You will have, you know, you know, you will, you will have it. And let's face it. Linda Ronstadt had a wonderful career. We just talked about that. Like you understand how big she was. And she goes, Oh, I want to do standards. Oh, I want to do, you know, she was, and still is a hero of mine, especially if you get to go see her, the documentary about her, Oh, Uh, such a moving. And, and, you know, I think what people forget is how their heroes get there. You know, we might see the end result of this famous, but like you're saying, you knew me. Yeah. So you would have known my heartaches because I also told you stuff that I would have other people or, my glory is that I yeah. want to share with other people. Yeah. So you can have all this, but you've got to compromise who you are and you have to go through, you know, you have to do this. Or I can give you this path where you'll you'll make a living and you know, and you'll your family won't ever go hungry <laughs> and you'll you'll have a, you know, you'll be able to sell out carrot and dreams. And Hey, there may be times where there's only 75 people that see you, but the 75 people that come to see you all effing love you. Which one do you want? You would have picked your path in a minute, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I was at a wonderful, wonderful event. I was invited to come be on a panel for and perform at, uh, it was a riot girl uh, conference in Seattle. And this would have been in, I don't know, 94, 95, maybe. Um, so I went to Seattle and it was awesome. It was all women, all women musicians. Patty Smith was the um, keynote speaker. And it was one of the best keynotes I've ever been honored to hear in person. Um, but two of the people that were there were Bonnie Raitt and Ann Wilson from Heart. Um, both big heroes of mine, and they were interviewing each other. They were sitting on this small stage, and there was maybe 300, 400 women crammed into this conference room at this hotel, just smitten. You know, we're just sitting there holding our breath and listening. And what I walked away from that was a profound sense of gratitude because Bonnie Raitt asked Ann Wilson, you know, do you have any regrets? The interesting thing was Bonnie was dressed in these very light clothes and Ann Wilson was in these very dark clothes. She even had on dark blue sunglasses. I mean, you could see her eyes, but everything about her was dark. And um, Anne heard the question and then she kind of elaborated on some regrets she had, you know, and we were all like nodding, you know, because we're all, all of us there were musicians, female musicians. And it was, a, it was a great experience to be around that many female musicians of all different colors and ages and from different places around the world. And then Anne asked um, Bonnie, she said, well, you know, what, what are your regrets? And Bonnie said, well, I think my biggest regret is, and then she shook her head and she said, no, 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 no. You know what? 
I don't think I have any regrets because it led me to right here, right now. And the minute she said that, I thought, for all the times I beat myself up about breaking some boyfriend's heart or all the times I break myself, you know, just beat myself up about, oh, I missed that note on stage or, oh, I didn't get that opportunity to do this thing because I went into that thing. I realized, wow, that's exactly where I want to be. I want to always just be grateful that right now I'm with Jesse on his podcast, you know, and tomorrow if I'm eating a hamburger with a friend who's got cancer, I want to be as present as I can be with that person. I don't want to you know, because how can we know, you know, maybe if I had uh, had one boyfriend all my life and married that one boyfriend, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. I'd be doing something else. Right. I wouldn't have had the same experiences. And for all the all the things that make us feel regretful or anxious or unhappy, there's this bounty of things that make us grateful and make us beautiful and make us who we are. And and we're the only one like us. So who are we to question this crazy experience called life right so I was really grateful to Bonnie for that and, uh, and then I met her several years later in person and that was pretty cool and told her thank you for that so so I think there's a song written by someone mm-hmm. that says my regrets led me to this place <laughs> <laughs> where the flowers replace the thorns I wonder who that is <laughs> be still You've had your fill Of lovers who've come and gone The time is right I see through the light That blinded me for so long It's no secret that I love This is like a love I've never known My mistakes to give a shout out right there because that song was written by me and Barbara Kay from Timbuk3. Yeah. And I, you know, just really quickly as an aside about that song, I was at Barbara's house and just such an amazing songwriter, such a, she's a Buddhist to the core. She would say, I don't know, but that's how she feels. And I was at her house and she keeps journals. I keep journals. So we brought our journals and we were talking about what songs could we write? And she said, well, I have this idea. And she showed me this open tuning that I'd never tried. And I was like, holy heck, that is amazing. And we sat together for a while and nothing really happened. She had this one idea for the words of the chorus. So we had the chorus and we had this open tuning. So I went out, it it had started raining and she had to go do something. So I left her house. I went out to my car. I got my car that was raining. I crawled in the back seat of my car. I got my guitar out of the case. I'm sitting in the car. It's steaming up, right? It's Texas and it's raining outside, but I was so driven to finish this song. <laughs> so I sat out there in the car and I wrote this song with these notes we'd made. Mm. And um, 
It's the longest song. I think it's six and a half minutes long, but man, I love that song because to me it was anthematic of being a woman and, and being a musician and being a person first and foremost, but having to constantly explain yourself. And, and yeah, anyway, so thanks for quoting something from one of my Anytime. Sarah and I were having so much fun, we kept talking. So I'm going to cut the episode in half. Please come back um, tomorrow, and you can hear the second half of my discussion with Sarah. We talk about her being on The Tonight Show, meeting George Burns, and lots of other fun stories. Thank you to my Patreons, Andrew Goddard, Betsy Hodges, Levi Petri, Elizabeth Bronson, Stephen Malio, Holly Mack, Steve Rogers, Dale Hosick, Terry Smith, Anna Lynn, Chris Bloom, and Mary Thomas. You all are my monthly angels. Thank you so much for the love and support you give on this podcast. You are greatly appreciated. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, that listening Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.